Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Let me begin this way. Every family has reoccurring arguments, don't you? Remember back, perhaps if you're in the life stage of empty nesters and that whole deal, uh, to when you had children, perhaps, or if you are, of course, uh, raised in a home with brothers and sisters, you will know what this is all about. Reoccurring arguments, they never resolve, they never end. I think that my kids actually enjoy them. They must, because they repeat them over and over and over again. They become daily routines. It's, it's like this in our household. I, I wish it always wasn't, but it kind of is. You get up, you brush your teeth, you make your bed, you eat your breakfast, and then you fight over who will sit in the back row of the SUV on the way to school. Because you know that's a huge deal. You know, who has to sit back there? It's like life is over if you have to sit, you know, six inches, 12 inches behind the middle chairs. I, I don't get it, but this is what happens. Some of the arguments are nothing more than manifestations of our depravity and sinfulness. Some others are just good fun. For example, my kids, uh, typical Gen Zers, they like to argue about their favorite Marvel heroes. They do this with their friends, they do it with each other, who's the strongest, who's the greatest, which Marvel Universe spin-off TV series is the best. And sometimes, as they argue, even as a 42-year-old man, I end up joining in and kind of nerding out right with them. It's just a fun argument to have. It's, it's humiliating to admit, but I've spent way too much of my time philosophizing about the Marvel multiverse and what could happen and what would happen and staring off into space and contemplating the ramifications of the latest what-if plot episode of the Marvel Universe. And here's one of the observations I've had in all of that deep thinking on meaningful things that I'm sure is a very good use of my time. Here it is. Are you ready for it? I promise this is going somewhere this morning, so just bear with me. This is what I came up with. I began to realize... Think about it, that most of the characters that are actually human beings, so we're not talking about the aliens, we're not talking about Thanos and Thor and people from other universes that have all kinds of special abilities and whatever it might be. We're talking about the normal human beings. The normal human beings, these characters, weren't born with their abilities. Most were transformed by something outside of themselves. So you have Tony Stark, he was transformed into Iron Man because he put an arc reactor into his chest. Sounded like a good idea at the time, I guess. Made for a good movie. Bruce Banner was transformed into the Hawk because he was exposed to gamma rays. Steve Rogers became Captain America because he was injected with super soldier serum. Peter Parker got bit by a radioactive spider that turned him into Spider-Man. So my thought was, what's the problem with humanity that even comic book and movie script writers think we need something outside of ourselves to help overcome our limitations? That's the deep thought. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I thought about it all week. I, you know, I was like, what better way to start a sermon than talking about Marvel? It's like we subconsciously know that what we are in our normal, natural, unaltered state is lacking something. And I think this is actually true. That somehow we know deep down that no matter how hard we try, we can't overcome our limitations of our own abilities. 
It's like we know that we need something from outside of ourselves to fix us, to transform us, to change us into better, stronger, smarter, longer-lasting versions of ourselves. I think this is written on our hearts. Now, the Christian story tells us that the real limitation, it's not a physical issue. It's not an intellectual issue. It's not a financial issue. It's ultimately a spiritual issue. It's a real thing that the Bible calls sin, turning from dependence on God to dependence on ourselves, thinking that this will lead to more independence, more freedom, more pleasure, more joy. But that move from dependence upon him to dependence upon ourselves has devastated and devoured every square millimeter of this planet. Sin is the villain behind the breakdown of our bodies, our brains, and our bonds to one another. Sin is an awful, unmerciful, unrelenting, unforgiving, murderous master. And I'm certain the effects of sin messed with your life in very profound ways just this week, just this past week, maybe even this morning, as you repeated one of your repeating arguments in the car. Romans 7 tells us the story. If you have a Bible, please turn there. We're going to be in Romans 7, verses, uh, actually chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, but I'm going to go back for a moment. Romans 7 tells us the story we can all relate to. It's the story, Paul says, of trying to overcome the master of sin in our own strength. So let me remind us of the words of the Apostle Paul that we looked at last week in Romans chapter 7, beginning in the second part of verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I need, he says, something outside of myself to do what I want to do. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, not what is what, uh, not want, is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then verse 24, wretched man that I am, he concludes, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's saying, I don't have what it takes I need rescued. He came to that conclusion. There's no arc reactor to put in your chest that will keep the shrapnel of sin from piercing your heart. There's no gamma rays or super soldier serum or spider bite that will give you the ability to overcome sin's grip, death grip ultimately on your soul. The problem with thinking, and this is the way our world often thinks, the problem with thinking self-will, self-reliance, and self-confidence will break you free from the sin, guilt, and shame you carry is that all of those uh, solutions, all of them are self-centered. They're all found within ourselves, and if you have the honesty to recognize that sin wrecks the life that God intended for you, then have the humility this morning to recognize you can't make up for what you lack. None of us can fix everything with our own ingenuity. We can't save ourselves. And this is why Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then this wonderful verse in verse 25 that leads right into Romans chapter eight. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the solution. Romans 7 reminds us of what life is like when we try to live out God's law in our own strength. It's a life of frustration and a life stuck 
in the cycle of sin. And then Romans 8 reminds us of what life is like when we live in the power of the Spirit. And so as we, as we turn there this morning, as we look into this chapter, realize you are turning to what I believe and what many have remarked as the greatest chapter in the Bible itself. It's an unbelievable chapter of truth. And Romans 8 tells us of the unstoppable, that's the name of this new series, work of God's spirit in the life of a Christian and in all of creation. God tells us there is a power for those in Christ far beyond ourselves that completely transforms us both now and forever. And some of the statements in the Bible, are, are, they're so powerful. This is what I love about the word of God. They're so powerful and so poignant. They become anchors of our faith. We go back to them time and time again. And I hope you have. If you've been following Jesus for some time and you've spent time in his word, we go back to those places, those poignant, powerful phrases, verses where he reminds us of who we are. He reminds us of the goodness of the gospel. And Romans 8 is full of them. And the first one is one of the greats. It's one of the best you'll find. In fact, when I was getting ready to prepare the sermon and Pastor Chris realized he'd be out of town, I said, Pastor Chris, you know you're giving me Romans 8.1. I'm like, you know you want to preach that one, don't you? He said, I do, I do. I wish I could be there. Because this is one of those verses, it's just so powerful. But before we get there, I want to remind us to look back at Romans 5 where Paul compared Adam to Jesus to set up the language we'll find in chapter 8. In Romans chapter 5, in 16, he says, And the free gift, he's talking about the gospel, is not like the result of that one man, that one man being Adam's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. A very important word. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And then verse 18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So here we see the crux of the issue for Paul. We are all under, he says, condemnation because of Adam's sin and ours. We stand judged, rightly, guilty by God. And the verdict is spiritual and physical death. But God offers all of us this free gift of, of life through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the gospel. And by faith in his sacrifice for our sin, we can be declared just and given new life. Actual new life, a new creation, we are called. So now we'll go back to chapter 8 and look at what is true for those who are in Christ through faith. This is the great declaration that the apostle makes in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you are not in Christ, you stand condemned by your sin before God for eternity. And ultimately that leads to separation and what he calls hell what the scriptures call separation from God, hell. In Christ, you are not condemned by your sin before God. You are given heaven. You are given life. That contrast is the essence of salvation. This is salvation defined. So our new location in Christ, 
our newfound faith in Christ, it removes our condemnation. It removes our condemnation. You are no longer judged for your sin by God. God's judgment of your sin has been completely erased, eradicated, eliminated, exterminated because of Jesus. If you check this verse out in the Greek, the first word is actually no. It's just no. And it's like Paul is emphasizing. He's just trying to bring it out of the text. He's trying to have it jump off the pages us to say to these believers in Rome and to the whole church, all of us today, for those of you in Christ, here's how it starts. No condemnation. No condemnation for you. You are not condemned. The world will condemn you. The world has condemned you. And they will again. But in the bigger picture of eternity, their words, according to the word of God, mean absolutely nothing. That's good news for you and me. So everybody can say, you don't measure up. Everybody can say, your mistakes make you unrighteous. Your mistakes in your history make you unworthy, unattractive, undeserving. Your mistakes make you unusable. Everybody can say, you're not good enough. You're not a good enough parent. You're not a good enough child. You're not a good enough brother or sister or owner or director or friend or lover or performer or spouse. You're not a good enough human being. Everyone can say that, but God says to all those in Christ, no condemnation. And the truth of this verse is that there is no cancel culture for those in Christ. That's good news. I can't get canceled out of God's love by the world. It's impossible. You've been declared, let me just speak this over you, declared righteous by faith. The Lamb of God has taken away your sins, John 1, 29. Your name is not written in the Lamb's book of eternal life, Revelation 13, 8. You are called worthy of God. You are a child of God and a friend of God. You are called the bride of Christ, a co-heir with Christ, a lover of Christ, a brother and sister with Christ. So Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. I would think there'd be a little bit more celebration this morning for that. Just a little bit more. That is grave to garden. But here's maybe why you're slow to clap. Maybe it's why you're slow to celebrate. Because in your heart of hearts, as you process this concept of no condemnation, as you think about it, the truth is, I need to say to some of you, maybe many of you, maybe all of us today, if God hasn't condemned you, then why do you keep condemning yourself? So many Christians live as if they stand condemned by God. But Christian, what this is saying is God hasn't condemned you to experience his wrath. He's covered you to experience his grace. Forgiveness isn't easy. It costs Jesus everything but you've been forgiven through faith. So maybe this morning, the best thing you can do as we work through these eight verses, the best thing you can do is just forgive yourself. Why should you judge yourself over your own sin when the actual judge of the living and the dead has already acquitted you through the blood of Christ? 
Now, Paul has already made it clear in chapter 6. He said, God's grace, that's God's grace. It doesn't mean you should continue in your sin because who cares? It means you serve Christ because he cared for you when no one else could. So, when we think about our own lives, I know there are so many people here wrestling with previous sin or even current sin, standing in condemnation of your own soul. And it is stealing away the very life of peace God has for you. You are not stronger than him. His arm has already extended his grace to you through Christ. We must take the courageous step of forgiving ourselves. So let's all admit it's hard to embrace the truth of Romans 8.1. We look over the landscape of our lives and see that it's been marked with so much sin. We think, no condemnation for those in Christ. How is that even possible? I can read the words, but I can still feel a different way. And Paul gives us three answers that we'll walk through briefly here in these seven verses. How can we know that this is possible? First, because in Christ the Spirit frees us. Look at verse two. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the reason why we can know for certain that there is no condemnation for those in Christ is because something outside of ourselves has done for us what we could not do in our own ability. The Holy Spirit has liberated us from sin and death through Christ. Now, Paul just showed us in Romans 7 that the law was powerless to save us from sin because sin hijacked the law. The result was that the law only multiplied the sin. We just became aware of all the sin that we did and the sin around us. But in Christ, God indwells us with something outside of ourselves, indwells us with his spirit, and the spirit is a new power that frees us from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit is the liberating agent that breaks the power that sin has over us and frees us so that we can live in accordance with God's ways and experience new life. So in Christ, we are not only freed from the, from the we're not only freed from the penalty of sin, which is to come, it's an eternal Result. It's something that is done for us forever. It's not just freeing us from the penalty of sin, the difference between heaven and hell. It's also, it's also freeing us right now in our immediate state of the power of sin. Now, maybe you've read or watched or experienced Victor Hugo's uh, very famous story, Les Miserables. I looked up last night how to say it right. I was just going to call it Less Miserables, but... Somebody told me that was wrong, and I think we just shorten it and just say lay Miz because we're too lazy to figure it out. But in the story, if you, if you know it, probably you all know it well, but Jean Valjean is a prisoner serving a sentence for theft, and Valjean becomes hardened by his prison sentence, and so when he's released, he has a hard time reacclimating into society because of this sin of his past. He carries the mark of a condemned criminal. So he ends up returning to his former way of life and he steals a silver cup from a local bishop. And he was technically free from the penalty of his sin. He was out of prison, at least according to the local law, but he was not set free from the power of sin. Free from the penalty, not from the power. So, this, so what happens is he continued to return to sin because the law only brought condemnation resulting in more sin. 
And the story turns when Valjean is caught for his actions and returned to the bishop. And what does the bishop do? He demonstrates incredible grace and tells the officers who arrested Valjean that the silver was a gift. And at that moment, he is changed forever. And in one sense, you could say that his release from prison removed the penalty of the law. But the bishop removed the power of the law by a radical act of grace which gave him new life, and so it is with us. Friends, the Spirit of God has freed you, not just from the eternal penalty of sin, he has freed you from the power of sin in your life right now. Sin's presence, it might feel powerful, but God is assuring us right here in his word that it is dead. So the starting point in overcoming sin The starting point is to recognize that sin does not have power over you anymore. It's like the genie who was freed from the power of the lamp when Aladdin said, genie, you're free. Remember that? Genie, you're free. Disney just ripped off the words of Jesus, I think. In John 8, maybe you know the verse, so if the son sets you free from all the chains and devastation of sin, if the sun sets you free, then you are free indeed. Or when he said to the woman caught in adultery, which he could have said to the man as well, John eight ten, women, woman, where are they? Where are all those people that were about to stone you? Where are all those people that condemned you? Remember, he asked them, he who is without sin, let him be the one who cast the first stone. And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. You are free from the penalty of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You are free from the power of sin as well. This is what Jesus does. Do you embrace it? You've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. You're free. You're free from it. If you're in Christ, you are free. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're free. Just turn to him this morning, say you're free. If they are in Christ, you are free from this power. And then you can start humming out a whole new world and it'll be wonderful. I'm I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. How is it possible that there is no condemnation for those in Christ? Because in Christ, the Spirit frees us. Secondly, because in Christ, God condemns sin. The, The script is flipped. God condemns sin. Look at verse three and four. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We had no internal ability to overcome the power of sin. Let me teach this for a second. Now the law, which came from outside of us, in one sense, it was given to God's people through Moses at Mount Sinai. And the law had no ability to rescue us from sin. We've been talking about this for the last many weeks, if you've been part of these series. It only made sin more obvious, as we've stated. But Paul says in Romans 2 that the law was also inside of us. He said it is written on our hearts, it's embedded in our conscience, and it still had no ability to rescue us. But what we could not do for ourselves and what the law could not do for us, God himself does through Christ. 
So Jesus, Paul says right here in these verses, the second person of the Trinity, divinity himself, he uses his words very carefully. He says he put on sinful human flesh. He put it on, meaning sin was not part of him. It was something that he then took on through his sacrifice. He put on human flesh, but he himself was without sin. This is what we call the miracle of the incarnation. And then looking forward to the cross, this is what we call substitutionary atonement. That means that Jesus covered over our sin as our perfect substitute. Because he was fully human, he was able to stand in our place and take away the penalty for our lawlessness. And because he is fully God, his sacrifice was sufficient to cover all sins, not just one. So through the victory of his condemnation and death, this is what Jesus actually did. This is the beautiful and powerful reality of the Christian story. Because of his death, because he was condemned to death, he condemned death itself. Sin was condemned through his victory. We actually see this work itself out in the famous children's book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, C.S. Lewis gives us a picture of this, and it's when Edmund, who represents us, a human being, was condemned to death by the evil witch who represents Satan. Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus, took his place, was put to death on a stone table, which represents the law, and then Aslan rose back to life. And when the children see him, they say, this is what Lewis writes, but what does it all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table, the law, would crack and death itself would start working backward. This is what this means. Think about it. In the garden, all the way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve, they had the ability, because sin had no power over them completely yet, they had the ability to choose to sin, or they could have chosen not to sin. They had that volitional choice. They could choose to sin, the ability to sin, the ability not to sin. After Genesis 3, after the fall, humanity could only sin. We had no power, we have no power to overcome sin's hold on our lives. We can only sin, but now in Christ, it's restored through the Spirit. We're given the Spirit, now we have the ability to choose to sin, or the ability through the Spirit to not sin. And ultimately, when you fast forward all the way to the end of the movie, all the way to the end of the script, all the way to the end of the Word, what happens is when God then restores all of creation, which we'll get to in this very chapter, through the work of Jesus Christ, there will no longer be the ability to sin at all. Sin will die. I look forward to that day. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for death to die. And it's already condemned because of Christ. We have to live in that reality. 
So how is it possible that there is no condemnation for those in Christ? Because in Christ, the Spirit frees us. In Christ, God condemns sin. And finally, because in Christ, we walk by the Spirit. The Father sent the Son to condemn sin so that we might live the way the Father intended. What's that look like? Well, it looks like a life like Jesus. It means loving God and loving people. We follow his way, and we do what the Bible calls walking by the Spirit. Look at how Paul puts it here in Romans 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the mark of a holy life, a life submitted to God, is a life that pleases God, a life that is fixed on following the Spirit of God. Are you fixated on the things of the flesh? It's a simple contrast here, or fixated on the things of the Spirit. Are you consumed with the worries of the world? And so your passion and energy and attention, they're set on politics, and you're constantly consumed by them, or it's set on the economy and what's going to happen, and all the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of the market, and maybe it's consumed, you're fixed on the virus. Of course, we have to think about such things, but do they consume your attention and focus? Are you consumed with the pleasures of the world? Is your passion and energy and attention set on position and power and pleasure and possessions? When we are fixed on the things of the world, it says that we are hostile to God and cannot please him. It's the state that we were in before Christ. This is who we are apart from Christ. And it means that you will experience no true life and peace. But if your mind is consumed with listening and responding to the leading of the Spirit, then God's peace will actually reign in you. That's how, that's how it'll feel. That will be your experience. Are you so aligned with the Spirit of God that his fruit is what you're feasting on? Are you so fixated on the ways of Jesus that his fruit is what you constantly consume? It's love and joy and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that your appetite? Is that what you are eating? What is the first thing, a simple litmus test ultimately? When you wake up in the morning and I have to admit that I failed at this far too many times than I'd like to admit. When you wake up in the morning, what's your first thought? Is it to grab a phone? Look at who messaged you. Look at who's trying to talk to you. You're immediately thinking about relationships. You're immediately thinking about the news. You're immediately thinking about the, the stock market. You're immediately thinking about work. You're immediately thinking about all the things in life and all the blah, 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 all the stuff, all, all the noise, all the clutter, all the distraction, all the brokenness. It just overwhelms. And before you even put your feet on the ground, you're finding yourself full of anxiety and worry and stress, and the word peace is the farthest thing from your heart and your reality. Friends, I think that hits close to home for probably nearly all of us. When that's your reality, it's hard to even breathe, you know? It's, like hard, it's hard to breathe. It's, 
It's hard to even think about breathing. I want my mornings, it reminded me of the song, I want my mornings to be more like this. When, in the morning when I rise, remember this song? In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all the world. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. And when I am alone, when I am alone, when you are alone, give me Jesus. You can have the whole world, just give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when we come to die, when you come to die, just give me Jesus. You can have the whole world. You can have the whole world. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. It's like my daughter when she's running cross country this year and she's running with the girls and her coaches get somewhere on the, on the path and they, they shout, this is what I was reminded of, and they shout out to the girls. It's, it's Pastor Jeff Keith, who's her coach. <laughs> so Coach Keith and it's Ryan Krogi who comes to this campus here, and I hear them yell at the girls and yell at all the, all, all the students, keep your head up, the race is out in front of you. Keep your head up, the race is out in front of you. Keep your mind set on the right thing. Keep your head focused on the right thing. Keep your eyes focused on the right thing. Fixate on the right thing. Because when, when your head goes down, you could even do it now, and your shoulders go forward, and your chin goes to your chest, try to take a deep breath, just try it. Just try to take a deep breath, you can't. Just can't catch my breath when my eyes are fixated on this earth, I, I, can't, I can't breathe. But when you stand up and put your shoulders back, try it this morning, you could probably use it, put your shoulders back, put your head up, inhale deeply. You can breathe. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll find peace. That's where it is. And I think for many of you today, it feels like you can't breathe. You're still under the weight of your own condemnation. Friends, breathe easy. The Spirit has freed you. Breathe easy. You are not condemned. Sin is. Breathe easy. When we keep in step with the Spirit, you will find life and peace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day and for your word. Your word is so powerful and true. We're so grateful for verses like these where we can say to ourselves over and over and over and over and over until your Spirit helps us believe it to be true. There is therefore now no condemnation for me, for us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for any here today who have not responded to your gospel. They have not submitted their lives to Jesus. They stand now condemned in their sin. Whether they're experiencing this online or in the room, I pray that in these moments they would cry out to you from the inner part of who they are, from their soul and their mind, that they would repeat these words and they would share with you, Jesus, forgive me. And help me to forgive myself. 
You've taken away my condemnation through your perfect sacrifice. In my place, you were my substitute. And you've declared me righteous by your blood. It's a mystery too great to understand. And yet you've made me new through faith. Father, I pray for any who have prayed that prayer, Father, that they would step into new life. And for all who have stepped into that new life, help us to recognize the gift of your spirit, your indwelling spirit, the gift of your son who gave us his spirit so freely. We can stand in that mystery and sing, holy, holy, holy are you. I am only worthy because you said so. I'm only free because of what you've done. I will give you all that I have because you gave all that you had. I'm yours. Take the whole world, Father. Just give us Jesus. We'll live for you this week. We'll live for you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and let's respond. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.